Let's just begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we ask that this particular message would speak to the hearts of those who know people in the mission field, of those, to those who know people who will be going to the mission field, and that you would bring us peace. In your name we pray. Amen. In the 16th century, there was a religious reform, a movement that swept across Europe. And it resulted in a branch of Christianity called Protestantism. And many different religious groups, because of their differences in doctrine, separated from the Roman Catholic Church. And during the time of the Reformation, there was a gentleman by the name of Thomas Bilney. He was a student of Cambridge. And one day he came across this verse. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the worst. This verse opened his eyes, it spoke to his heart, it changed his life, his life, and Thomas understood that salvation was by faith through grace. And he joyfully shared his faith with everyone who would listen, knocking on doors, telling them what he knew. And then one day, Persecution came knocking on his door. And he was arrested because of what he believed. And he was told to recant. He was told to change what he believed. To say that he no longer believed in what he said he believed. Or be burned at the stake. What to do? Friends visited him in jail. They pleaded with him to change his mind. Thomas struggled with his soul. Although the verse that says, whoever will save his life will lose it, echoed in his mind, he reasoned that if he recanted from his faith, he would be, God would be able to use him to reach out to so many more people. If I, just, if I could recant this just once. Well, within months of walking out of prison, Thomas, confused, ashamed, filled with guilt, would walk away from the faith he was willing to die for because it was unbearable for him to follow the faith he had denied. As we continue our study this morning in the book of Acts, I believe that the key verse that summarizes the major theme of the book is found in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And in many cases, as we've been going through the book of Acts, God has allowed the persecution of the church to be the catalyst in fulfilling this verse. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And over the next couple of weeks in Acts chapter 27 and 28, we're going to read about Paul's final journey to Rome. And so the question this morning, when we come to Acts chapter 21, verses 17 through 40, are the following. How did Paul, a witness to Christ, respond when he was persecuted for his faith? 
and two, as witnesses for Christ. What lessons, what can we learn from Paul's life as we too face persecution for our faith? Now we know that persecution is on the rise against Christians across the world. According to a report that was recently commissioned by Open Doors International, looking at a time period from October 20th to September 2021, we know that over 360 million people endured persecution and discrimination last year. That's one out of seven people globally. We know that there were 5,898 5, Christians that were killed. That's 16 people murdered per day. We know that there are 5,110 churches that were attacked or closed. That's about 100 churches per week. We know there were, there were 6,175 Christians arrested without trial. That's 17 people per day. Imagine here this morning, somebody walks in through that back door, grabs one of our loved ones, and just takes off with them. And there were 3,829 people that were kidnapped. That's 10 people kidnapped per day. And in terms of those countries that are most dangerous for Christians, Afghanistan ranks first, overtaking North Korea. Four of those five countries regarded the highest rate of anti-Christian violence are Islamic states. And apart from Afghanistan, they include Somalia, Libya, and Yemen, followed by Nigeria, Pakistan, Iran, India, Saudi Arabia, Myanmar, Sudan, Iraq, and Syria. And so for those reasons, I've called this morning's sermon, Persevering Through Persecution with Purpose, Praise, and Power. And I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 21, where we will begin our reading at verse 15. Acts chapter 21, beginning our reading at verse 15. 15. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Mason, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. Now, just by way of introduction, Paul is heading from Caesarea, a city on the coast, to Jerusalem. It's about, according to Google Maps, 64 miles. Uh, when I, I punched into my computer, that, that's the distance from Montreal to Parkside Ranch. And so I, I punched in, how long would that take by foot? And it, it's at out 34 hours. So not, not including some sleep and some breaks and maybe some eating, that's somewhere between two and three, possibly four days of walking. So it's, it's quite some, some journey. And what's interesting from this trip is that Paul, he has some money with him. It's money that he's collected from the Gentile churches, which he's going to bring as a gift to the poor in Jerusalem. We also know that he's traveling with some disciples from Caesarea. Now, I don't think we appreciate that when we read that verse, that there were people that were traveling together. You see, it was an interesting custom. It was a custom of faith, a custom of love, a custom of fellowship. People would travel with you 
in part or in whole distance. So today we would call that stalking <laughs> or, or being in my bubble, right? But back then, that was normal. People would travel with you. And here you have Paul and his cohort of disciples, and they're traveling, and they arrive at this house, this house of this gentleman by the name of Mason. And we, we know that Mason, it's a Greek name, and, and so we can assume that Paul and his companions, his Gentile companions, uh, they're all welcomed at Mason's home. Now, they could have traveled to a Jewish home where the Mosaic ceremony and there were different customs that were religiously observed, but there might have been some tension between the people that Paul was traveling and the people that they, whose homes they would have stayed at. And so when we consider Luke in writing Acts, we have to remember that he's focusing on the redemptive story of history, the redemptive history from Jews to Gentiles. We know that the gospel was rejected in Jerusalem, and it's no surprising, it's not surprising that here he is with his Gentiles staying at Mason's home. Now what we're going to do is we're going to continue through our verses, and we're going to have four different signposts to help us move from the text. And they are communion, concern, compromise, and consequence. So let's begin with our first signpost, communion, verses 18 through 20. 17 through 20, verse 17. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then, amen, yes, brother. Then they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. So Paul, he arrives in Jerusalem. We think it's the round of Pentecost. Why do we think that? Because in Acts 20, verse 16, it says that Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. So not only do we know he's arriving somewhere around the time of Pentecost, which is 50 days after Passover, but we also know there's going to be a lot of people in the city of Jerusalem. And as Paul and his companions, they arrive there, they're warmly greeted or received by the brothers and sisters of Christ. Now just put yourself there in that situation, in that home, in that gathering at that time. There's going to be a time of fellowship. There's going to be a time of sharing. There's going to be a time of communion. And by communion, communion I don't mean the breaking of bread. That's not what we're talking about here. Uh, that's probably what many of us think. Um, but they're warmly gathered together. They're enjoying each other's company. And remember, Paul has a monetary gift. He has money for them. But, it, but it's not just about the money. It's about what the money symbolizes, what the money represents. And the money represents the love that the Gentiles have for their Jewish bro brothers and sisters. And so it's, it's an act of love. It's, it's an act of unity between Jewish and Gentile believers because in the past we knew they weren't always getting along. There was friction. There was tension. Uh, just between this group, there's a lot of bitterness. And so Paul is arriving here, and he's got the money, and I'm sure there were hugs and maybe some kisses and so signs of appreciation, and maybe some people were even crying and overwhelmed by this. And it's a time of great joy, like we sang this morning, a time of great joy. And they're, and they're celebrating the common unity that they have with one another in Christ. And in verse 18, it says that Paul and his traveling companions, they go and they're going to see James, and they're going to go and see the elders. And this is 
Throughout the book of Acts, we see how they are reporting to the elders in Antioch. And so, so they're, they're together, and they're like, okay, so tell me, what happened in Ephesus? Well, let, let me tell you what happened in Ephesus. And let me tell you what happened in Greece. And Eutychus, ah, did you hear? What, what? He was raised from the dead. Really? Yeah, he, he, he fell three stories. Yeah, really? How did that happen? Well, details aren't important, right? <laughs> okay, now that joke's funny. Because Paul was preaching so long that Eutychus fell asleep and fell three stories to his death. But Paul skips over that, right? And in verse 19, it says, Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through the ministry. Did you catch that? I know maybe I said it a little quickly. What God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Paul does not report what he has done. It's not about his ministry. It's not about him. It's not about his accolades. He's not a seeking employee of the month of McDonald's. He doesn't want no picture in a frame. Instead, he's reporting what God has done. And, and he tells them about their last missionary journey. And he tells them about the churches that they visited. And he tells them about the persecutions that they face. And he tells them about the salvation of the Jews and the Gentiles. And, and you, can, you can picture them. They're all together and they're just listening to this. And they're, they're filled with joy. And they're really happy, right? This is everything that God has done. God has done this and God has done that. Paul is a great man of, he's a man of great humility. Unlike our friend Bill Murray here. You. <laughs> no, you. Good job. Bill Murray probably tells himself that very thing every day as if it's Groundhog Day. Well, that joke is funny. Well, tough crowd. But if I'm being honest, there's a part of my old nature that wants to be told, Stephen, good job. And so I need to keep my pride in check. I need to make sure that it doesn't rule me. And Paul, throughout the book of Acts, he's been consistently giving praise, giving glory, giving credit to God. In his first missionary report, we read in Acts chapter 14, verse 27, on arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. In Acts 15, verse 12, we read, The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul, telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. What incredible humility. And as we read in Acts chapter 21, our passage this morning, how do the elders respond after hearing Paul's report? We read it in verse 20. They respond by praising God, by glorifying God. God receives all the glory. You see incredible humility in both Paul's report to the elders and in the elders' response as they, too, give glory to God. Persevering through persecution with purpose, praise, and prayer. And that brings us to our second signpost, concern. Beginning at verse 20. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. 
They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. Yes, thousands of Jews had believed in Jesus Christ. But the concern was that all of them, all of them, all of them, were zealous for the law. Zealous. It means to support something strongly that you believe in. And what they believed strongly in was the law. It was about their ceremonies. This is what the Jewish believers performed. The Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, how they observed the Sabbath, what they wore, what they ate. And although they were saved by faith through grace in Jesus Christ, they were still having a hard time separating themselves from Judaism. Remember in Acts chapter 10, God showed Peter through a trance that there was no more dietary law. Peter says, I've never, I've never eaten anything that is impure or unclean. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean, the voice says. And this happens three times. And so religion for Jewish Christians was a way of life. It, it was still part of their custom and their tradition. And the, tra the, the transition from Judaism to Christianity, it wasn't an easy one. And it was going to take time. In Acts 21, verse 21 it tells us that these Jewish Christians have been informed. The Greek word informed means they have been drilled about you. To be drilled. I think of a drill sergeant barking orders, screaming at people, getting them in line, putting them in shape. Right? There is someone here, Paul, there is someone out there that is drilling these Jewish Christians that you, Paul, are saying that they must turn away from Moses. They're, they're also saying that you teach against circumcision. They're also saying that you are telling people that they don't have to live according to the customs. And we know that these are all lies. Lie number one, it would have been impossible to tell all of the Jews... All of the Jews, all of the Jews who live among the Gentiles, these things that he was accused of saying, it was just impossible. Line number two, there is no account of Paul telling Jews to turn away from Moses. I haven't read that anywhere. Line number three, if Paul taught against circumcision, why did he have Timothy circumcised in Acts 16? In fact, in Galatians chapter 5, the Judaizers accused Paul of teaching circumcision. It's the opposite of what he's being accused of now. They, they couldn't make up their mind. Was he or wasn't he for it? He, he might have told Gentiles that they did not have to be circumcised in order to be saved, but he never told Jews that they shouldn't be circumcised. Line number four, there's no account of Paul telling them not to live according to their customs. In fact, if that was true, explain how in Acts 18, Paul was recorded taking a vow. You, you wouldn't have done that if he was telling them not to live according to their customs. Actually, if you go back to the book of Romans, you, and, and again, book of Romans was written prior to Paul being in Jerusalem at this time in Acts chapter 21, he writes, I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. 
But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone from whom Christ died. These are Everything is a lie because what Paul is saying here is do what you have to do in order to bring somebody to Christ. And, and don't discourage them based on your customs or your ceremonies. This had nothing to do with truth or doctrine. Persevering through persecution with purpose, praise, and power. And this brings us to our third signpost, compromise. Verse 22 in Acts 21. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses, so that they have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. The elders, when hearing this, are concerned for Paul. Many thousands, and the Greek word for thousands means thousands of thousands, so there are a lot of people. Thousands of Christians have been told lies about Paul. He's anti-Jewish, he's anti-law, he's anti-ceremony, he's anti-custom, he's anti-Judaism. And the lies spread like fire at a stake. And so they need a solution. They need to find a compromise. And I love this definition. It's up in the chart about compromise. It says, a compromise is not an act of weakness. It demonstrates that you care for something or someone beyond yourself. It demonstrates that you care for something or someone beyond yourself. And as Paul is listening to the elders, again, showing that he is a man of great humility, we see this compromise. It's a, it's a compromise of love, an act of love. Because what do we know about this vow? Well, if you go back, and we're not going to, but if you turn to Numbers chapter 6, the vow represented or meant that you were completely separate unto God. All right, so you would abstain from drink. You would allow your hair to grow long. And these these signs, these things that you did show that you were separating yourself from the world and you were drawing closer to God. You were dedicating your life to God. You were saying that you were his. And so Paul, take, take these men with you, do these things, purify yourself with them, and then go again and, and to show that you're really serious, why don't you go and pay their expenses because there were animals that had to be sacrificed. And Paul, even though he was a tent maker and he didn't have a lot of money, this would show that he was, you know, he was one of them. He, he, was doing, he was serious about this. And so when the people who were accusing him of being anti all of these things, they would show up and they'd go, oh, no, that's impossible. Paul, no, he's obedient to the law. Look, he's done this and he's done that and he's done this and he's done that. And so how does Paul respond? He goes ahead with their plan. Why? Why does he go ahead with their plan? 
because his compromise did not violate any truth. It's not about doctrine. This is about ceremony. And Paul's concerned with unity. He's concerned with unity. And he probably believed that through this compromise, other people would know Jesus Christ. That other people would know Jesus. That they would know that God loves them. That they would know that they're forgiven, that they're accepted, that they're adopted, that they're redeemed. That they're guaranteed a place in heaven, that God will never leave them nor forsake them. Paul just wanted people to know these great truths about God, these unfathomable riches in God. Persevering through persecution with purpose, praise, and power. And praise and prayer. We could have power there too, but we didn't have enough time. And this brings us to our, our last signpost, consequences. And I love this little caricature up there. Um, because um, actions do have consequences. Well, Paul did decide to go to Jerusalem. He is at the temple. There are many people. And let's pick it up at verse 27. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. Lies, lies, and more lies. And despite all of Paul's compromise, these accusers... They continue to make false accusations, false statements that damage Paul's reputation. So slander is what we first see in these verses. In verse 29, we see speculation. It says they had previously, they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. There was no proof of that. There was no proof that Paul, a Jew, had, had taken him, a Greek, illegally into the, the temple. They just assumed. Let's, let's just assume. That's what they, they, it was an assumption. It was speculation. And then I see seizure in verse 30. It says the whole city, the whole city was aroused. That's an uproar, folks. Imagine being there. Imagine being Paul. And the whole city wants your head. And it says the people, they're they're running from all directions. That's chaos. And they seize them. And it says they drag him from the temple. And immediately the gates are, they're shut. And so Paul, he's seized, he's grabbed, he's dragged out from the temple. There's no questions. No questions are asked. They just assume that he's guilty until proven guilty. I know I didn't slip on that. Four, attempted murder. Verse 31, while they were trying to kill him, folks, They're trying to kill him. While they're trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. The whole city. The whole city. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. And while the rioters, okay, there's rioters too, saw the commander and his soldiers... They stopped beating Paul. Oh, great, finally. He stops getting the beating. This attempted murder. 
a beatdown. <laughs> Their anger is so strong that they're about to kill him. What happens if the officers don't show up in time? We might not have a chapter 22. Verse 5. <clears throat> Sorry, fifth point. Verse 33. He's arrested, he's bound, and he's placed in barracks. Verse 33. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing. They don't even know. <laughs> and some another. They have no idea. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, that's how bad it was. Even the commander couldn't get to the bottom of this. He ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. I mean, there's just so many lies. The commander can't even figure out the truth. He can't separate the truth from the lie. And there again, Paul, arrested, bound, placed in the barracks. Sixth thing that we see here. He's carried by the soldiers and he's disowned. Verse 35. When Paul reached the steps... The violence of the mob was so great. It's like it's a crescendo that just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. When he reaches the steps, the violence of the mob, and I'm not saying this like, like smiling in any way, it's just, it's just I, I, unfathomable. The violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. I mean, there's so many people, the mob is angry, um, they could not extract, pull out, take out. They could not carry Paul out by foot. I don't, that's what the text says here. It says that he had to be carried by the soldiers. He had to be lifted up. That's how bad this is. And what, what are they shouting? The crowd's shouting, get rid of him. But Paul had made his way to Jerusalem. And the, and the people, they, they want to kill him. They're screaming at the top of their lungs, get rid of him. And what grabs my attention, or that which speaks to me in these verses, is that Paul, despite all of the persecutions, right, the, the, the slander, the, the, the wrongful speculation, the seizure, the attempted murder, the, 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 unwar the unlawful arrest, he's bound, like John mentioned last week, with, with chains, the, 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 barrack, the, the barrack imprisonment, the people's disownment, because despite all of this, he never puts up a defense. He never says, you've got this all wrong. I'm being falsely accused. Nothing. Not a word. He remains silent until he is standing before the commander in verse 37. We read in verse 37, as the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barrack, barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't, aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 <laughs> 4, terrorists? Aren't, aren't you the one who started the revolt and led 4,000 terrorists? What? I went to the wilderness some time ago. Verse 39, Paul answered, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, dot, dot, dot. Paul, throughout this text our our ah, this morning, has shown incredible humility. 
Paul humbled himself when he was before the elders. Paul gave all of the credit, all the glory to God. That was in verse 20. In verse 24, he humbled himself when the elders asked him to compromise in order to appease those who were accusing him. We saw that in verse 24. He now humbles himself before the mob. We read that in verses 31 and 32. A mob that wanted to drag him, to beat him, to kill him. And as we read through Acts 21, and I'm limiting observations to Acts 21. I know John went a little bit more broad last week. Um, I actually uh, had uh, written this before I went back and listened to John online because I was away last week. And we were very much in the same lane because it becomes apparent really quickly that Paul is a type of Christ. In Acts 21, both Jesus and Paul, they go to Jerusalem. Both were falsely accused by the Jews. Both were arrested, beaten, and mistreated. The, the crowds demanded uh, one, uh, their deaths, right? One group said, get rid of them. The other group said, crucify him. And both Jesus and Paul remained silent before their accusers. The difference is that Jesus committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. And he took our place on the cross, bearing the weight of our sins and the sins of the whole world on himself. This is why the disciple Peter wrote, this is what the disciple Peter wrote about suffering in 1 Peter chapter 2. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. We like Jesus and Paul and Thomas Bilney, need to fully trust God, the one who judges justly. You see, although Thomas Bilney walked away from his faith, God was still working in his life. And years later, Thomas would return to his faith, an even stronger proponent and voice of Christ. And sure enough, he would once again be arrested. He would be arrested because of the faith he professed. And again, he would be threatened to be burned at the stake. Recant. Recant your belief in Jesus. But this time, however, he was resolved not to turn back. He was not going to make the same mistake twice. He never wanted to again experience that guilt and that shame and that fear and so he refused to recant his belief in Jesus Christ. And the night before his death, there was a lamp burning on the table in his room, similar to the light we see in that picture. And Thomas took his finger, and he held it up against the flame until his finger was burned to the joint. 
telling his friends, I quote, I am persuaded by God's holy word and the experience of martyrs that when the flames consume me, I shall not feel them. However, this stubble of a body shall be wasted by it. A pain for the time will be followed by joy unspeakable. The next day, they led Thomas to the same pit where other martyrs had died because of his belief in Jesus Christ. Moments before he burned at the stake, he knelt down and prayed and then slowly rose, kissing the very stake that would take his life. I began this morning by asking two questions. How did Paul, a witness to Christ, respond when he was persecuted for his faith? And two, as witnesses for Christ, what lessons can we learn from Paul's life as we too face persecution for our faith? And although our persecution may be different from our brothers and sisters around the world, we still face persecution. Let me share three quick examples. As a church, the federal government in Canada has imposed certain restrictions regarding what the church can say and teach regarding conversion therapy. That is all I'm going to say. Out of respect for the government and because I don't want to be arrested and jailed. Two, last year in this church, there was a man who, a uh, first-time visitor, came to this church. He was having a conversation with David Burton and I. And we were just having a, a normal conversation, but as we are going deeper into the conversation, his, his remarks became derogatory. He was getting more and more angry. There was no unity of peace. There was no spirit of peace. You just felt it. And uh, Brother James, he was, you know, walking with him before the breaking of bread. He just felt like he had to be there. And it was only when uh, I think Nick said, okay, it was, it was time for this man to leave that we were going to ask him politely to leave the church. And he was refusing to go until we threatened to call the police. Then he got up and he left. That is just a small example of persecution in the church. But it happens. Third, when we try to share our faith at work, or in school. And the minute we say something that's contradictory to what the world says or believes or the propaganda that they're down our throats, we may not be arrested or thrown in jail, but it may feel like it. And so I want to answer both of these questions by returning to the title of today's sermon, which is up there. And I want to apply our application within the objectives, the nouns, and the verb in our title. Persevering through persecution with purpose, praise, and prayer. Now let me fill in the blanks. Persevering. Showing incredible humility. Putting others before yourself. Not thinking less of yourself, as C.S. Lewis wrote, but thinking of yourself less. Showing humility towards God, towards people in authority, elders, deacons, your boss, your teacher, those who mistreat us, turning our cheek. Through persecution, lies, lots of lies towards us, 
slander, false statements that damage someone's reputation, unfounded speculation about your character because of what you believe or what you profess. What about seizure, depending on what country you live? Murder, anger towards another brother or sister in Christ is the New Testament definition of murder. Unrest, unlawful arrest, binding others with chains through words or actions. Imprisonment or even disownment because of one's faith in Christ. I've heard of so many families that have been broken up or people kicked out of the house from a parent because somebody tried to share their faith out of a deep concern and love for that person. Without, with purpose, compromising. Again, caring for something or someone beyond yourself. Compromising, we do it, compromising in non-doctrinal areas for the sake of unity. And we pray that this will lead to somebody coming to know Christ. Praise. Giving glory to God in all circumstances. And lastly, prayer. My personal conviction in preparing this this morning is that I realized that I need to pray more for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are being persecuted daily because of their faith and belief in Jesus Christ, especially for those in Afghanistan, North Korea, uh, Somalia, Libya, Yemen, Nigeria, Pakistan, Iran, India, Saudi Arabia, Sudan, Iraq, Syria, where Christians are killed, churches are attacked, churches are closed, people are arrested without trial and kidnapped. I also want us to keep Ben Morton in prayer. He's leaving on a mission trip January 23 to Ecuador. We know of the unrest that's going there right now. We need to be praying for Ben. We need to be praying for his family. We need to be praying for Latin American ministries. We need to be praying for everybody who's going there to reach those people. You've been watching the news. You know how bad it is. Pray lift up the Morton family over the next three months, please. And at the same time, we need to be praying for our local assembly, for our church, for our family members, for unsaved, for people who don't know Christ as our Savior. Complacency is one form of persecution, but man, there's so many others. And so, how do we pray? And I'm going to end with this. Did you know that the first record of persecution in the book of Acts is in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John, they're arrested. They're arrested because they're teaching and proclaiming Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the dead. And guess what happens? They're thrown in jail. And they're told, don't ever speak again. And, and upon their release, what do they do? They go to their people. They're all together. They give an account. They say, this is what happened. And then they pray. And their prayer isn't, God, how can you let this happen? Or, God, don't let this happen. Or, or God, God, if you're truly a good God, how do you love bad things? There's no complaint. There's none of that. You know what it is? It's complete praise and recognition of the sovereignty, of the omniscience, the, uh, everything that is all-powerful in God. And so this is what I'd like us to do. I'd like that prayer to be our prayer as we close in prayer this morning. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers bend together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your